Military ethics training often thinks of war crimes as a bad apples thing, as a failure of virtue. What that misses is that if you look at institutionalized war crimes, what constitutes a military virtue is not some objective known fact, right? But it's shaped by social, political, and local narratives. So think about like the virtue of honor. In some cultures, in some contexts, in some wars, honor has been viewed as consistent with killing civilians. How do you get this case where people who view themselves as good people can come to believe that something like torture, widespread genocidal killing of, of civilians, or institutionalized rape as, as something that's permissible or even morally good? In terms of getting soldiers to understand that they can become that person, right? Because I do think there's understandably a lot of resistance to that because I, I think nobody thinks going to the military, oh yeah, obviously I'll end up killing civilians. Hello everyone. Today I bring you the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Jessica Wolfendale. Jessica is a professor of philosophy at Case Western Reserve University. She's the author of Torture and the Military Profession, as well as the co-author, together with Matthew Talbot, of War Crimes, Causes, Excuses and Blame, which is a book we'll mention a lot today. Jessica has published numerous articles and book chapters on topics including military ethics, terrorism, security, war crimes, and the ethics of torture. Jessica, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Hi, thanks for having me. As I mentioned to you before we started, that book is, is absolutely amazing. And I don't know if it's the right word to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed it, given, uh, <laughs> given the dark topic. But if one can use that word to describe such a book, then it's absolutely appropriate. Found it fascinating uh, and look forward to chatting. But before we dive into the, I guess, the dark subject matter of uh, war crimes, uh, maybe we can find out a little bit about your own background. What motivated your entry into ethics uh, in the first place, and then particularly into the study of torture and war crimes? I had a slightly unusual, I guess, path to doing a PhD in philosophy. So I did my undergraduate degree at the ANU in Canberra, and I did a major in philosophy, but it wasn't like my passion. And then really, I it was actually when I was watching an Anzac Day parade, and I recall starting to just wonder about how soldiers are trained to kill. Mm. And I was wondering about what that process was like for soldiers, how it affected their views about killing. And so really there was a very sort of specific question that then led me to think, actually, I want to go back and do more studies. So that's what led me to do a PhD at Monash University after doing a bit of master's qualifying work. Mm -hmm. And so my master's qualifying thesis was actually comparing soldiers and executioners as being two professions that require people to be trained to kill huh. and how that intersected with the justifications, philosophical discourse around those practices. And then my PhD dissertation focused on the moral psychology of military tortures. So my first book, Torture in the Military Profession, is essentially my PhD dissertation. Mm. So I was always really interested in how it was that people who viewed themselves as good people who were in, say, military forces from, you know, democratic states, community human rights, could end up committing atrocities like torture. That was always the kind of question that motivated and still does drive a lot of my research. It's expanded since then, but ultimately that is one of the questions. How is it that, you know, societal, institutional practices, as well as sort of individual psychology, shape to make violence acceptable and permissible in certain contexts. Mm. You made mention that, you know, it's not that you were fascinated with the meaning of life, but it seems to me in almost a, a bizarre way you were fascinated with the meaning of death or, or the process of, and how do we inculcate the sense of 
killing in soldiers right. and I find it interesting executioners. So right. obviously I haven't read that book or the thesis, but what do you mean by executioners? How do we define executioners in this sense? We're looking specifically at in capital punishment systems in the United States. So who were the executioners? How are they trained to perform that role? Mm. What did the performance of that role tell us about the way the moral framework surrounding capital punishment in the US? Oh, um, and we really fascinating. Is this, I think, similar to how we approach training to kill? Like these mm. tensions between viewing violence as necessary. And I don't really touch on the the arguments for and against capital punishment, but obviously I think the training of executioners factors into that, but rather how it shapes the way in which capital punishment is viewed as being a kind of almost professional, detached, humane killing Mm. through the use of specific kinds of not just mechanisms such as lethal injection, but practices, ways of talking about it, ways of interacting, you know, between the guards and the prisoners, the very design of the room in which execution takes place, all of this shapes a kind of moral perception of what's going on in a particular way and and masks by doing so the true violence of capital punishment. Like, mm. you know, you do, the state is destroying a human life. Again, whether or not you think it's justified, that's still what the state is doing. I agree. It's completely relevant to this context, yeah. Yeah, so in the military context, I think, too, you see those contradictions between, on the one hand, this a sense, well, if we're going to have a military force and we think that war is justified, then killing is necessary. Soldiers must be trained to kill. Well, how do we do that in a way that enables them to do so effectively when they need to, but also hopefully enables them to recognise the distinction between lawful and unlawful killing, Mm. allows them to retain some sense of moral goodness. And in some ways, some of the tensions I think you find in that process play out in the ways in which war crimes can come to be normalized and justified as well Mm. so so in a sense the question about killing i think is a gateway to some of these larger questions about the normalization and the ways in which different forms of violence against others comes to be normalized justified comes to be reconciled with one's conception of oneself as a good person so i think one of the things i'm very fascinated in and more broadly i guess and specifically about political violence is how do we live with what we've done? So what I think too, and some of the research I did in, on the training of torturers in my dissertation and some of the work for the War Crimes book, I think, well, you know, to be a person who's committed an act like this, and and I think this is also true in relation to soldiers who kill, who kill lawful combatants who don't commit war crimes. And so how do you make sense within yourself of what you've done? Like how do you reconcile within yourself? And and it raises questions about, you know, forgiveness and self-forgiveness and atonement and how do we make sense of what who we are and what we've done. Yeah. And in relation to our social group, and I'm just thinking yeah. about the executioner part, I'd imagine there would be less executioners who would have, say, PTSD or, or moral injury than there would be uh, soldiers who, you know, killed people in, in combat for one reason is that, firstly, they know what they're going to do. Mm. Secondly, there's an entire ceremony as you said, there's the room, there's the roles and uh, an embodiment of a particular role that you you know exactly what you're going to do. And thirdly, actually, the act has been vindicated by your society through law. It has been made law that this right. person shall no longer live. And you are merely the tool that presses the button, so to speak. There is some evidence. And so one of the books I used, because there's very little research on executions in the US. Wow. Okay. There was one book by a guy called Robert Johnson called Death Work. And he wrote that... I, I want to say maybe in the late 80s, and he's he actually talked to execution teams in a number of states. And as far as I'm aware, that's like the only book where actually like talks to people who do this role. Oh wow! Which in some ways makes sense. It's not something I think people would want to sort of volunteer that they are part of. 
But there is some evidence that there was elements of PTSD, at least at least for some of the, the guards who were engaged in the execution role. Mm. And I think the very process of being involved mm. in a killing activity that's, you know, curtailed and, you know, given this veneer of legitimacy and humaneness itself can cause an internal tension, right? Mm. Dissociatives, there's sort of two levels of knowledge. On the one hand, you know you're killing someone against their will. On the other hand, you're kind of engaged in a pretense that you're just a cog in the machine, that you're not responsible for their death. That, again, speaks intuitively to me about the topic we're going to talk about, and, and that's soldiers, uh, because, I mean, it's really what soldiers experience. And, and again, right. you know, regardless of how much we prepare our soldiers for what they're going to do, and, and we need to strip back the reality of war and combat is that ultimately a military exists for the purpose of killing another military or, or another social group that's threatening yours, whether they're a formal military or not. And that has a price to pay. I recently interviewed Ned Dobosch. He quite credibly, I think, argues that just by joining the military, ever so slightly, you're starting the process of desensitization to the idea of killing, which in itself ends up a, for most of us, a mild form of uh, what he called moral injury. But of course, for others mm. uh, who are either intimately involved in the act of killing or exposed to it, or you know, think about it, or you know, haven't reconciled the idea mm. uh, becomes something much, much greater. It's interesting that you're talking about Ned because I was talking to him fairly recently. He and I are, well, I'm a partner investigator on an ARC grant that he's put in on moral injury. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Because I've written, actually, Matthew Talbot and I have just written a book chapter on moral injury. Okay. And and our views differ somewhat from, from Ned's in that we we kind of worry about the way the language of moral injury is used to encompass a whole range of different forms of, say, moral distress mm. without any clear understanding of why or under what conditions distress counts as injury. Mm. And, you know, also sometimes, and Ned does talk about this, sometimes lack of distress, you know, is sometimes described as injury too. Yeah. But um, in our view, you can't really talk about injury without first having a conception of moral health. Yeah. Right. You know what, physical injury implies a conception of physical healthy functioning. Mm-hmm. Not every kind of pain that you suffer is necessarily an injury. And so actually, in some ways, I would probably push back against that a bit and say, well, desensitization is not in itself a moral injury necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that there are other professions that require desensitization. So surgeons mm-hmm. have to be desensitized. They are, you know, to the sight and sound of blood and cutting up bodies and, you know, dealing, and actually doctors and nurses in general, in fact, mm, absolutely. have to be able to interact with extreme human distress and sometimes cause distress in a way that doesn't mean that they collapse in the heap every time they deliver the patient. So desensitization, I think, even to cases where you're doing something harmful, it's not necessarily an injury unless it rises to the extent where it impairs someone's ability to actually, it's a bit complicated to summarise here, but basically impairs someone's ability to act as a kind of moral agent, to engage in interpersonal relationships. So in some ways our thresholds are probably a little higher than his. That yeah. said, we do think that there are certain ways in which military culture and training could inflict moral injury in the way in the way that we define it, right, as an impairment of, of moral health. I wonder if I can just ask a question then on that. I wonder is could we then say that I guess the desensitization component is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for yeah. immoral behavior. And the reason I'm saying this is because we know that war or the callousness of war desensitizes you to the act of killing or right. the ambience of war. I mean, I just think of myself as a 10-year-old child in Bosnia. The first time I heard of somebody close to me die, I cried. Mm. Within two months after I'd heard now 30 people who had died, 
I'd acknowledge their death in a manner that's uh, that's respectful. I wasn't as affected as I was on the first one, and I also have, and I've interviewed you know soldiers, special forces soldiers in particular, who've been engaged in the act of killing time and time again. And you know what struck me as as really powerful is that it's interpreted as that's just part of the job. Right, right. Now that is a desensitization that is absolutely, in my view, necessary for them to do their job. Right. But it's also one that I would consider, and maybe I'm naive here as you know, a necessary piece of the puzzle in order for you to then go and carry out something we'd later, you know, in the comfort of our home, describe as a war crime. I think that's true. I guess I, I'm, Sorry, I'm putting you on a spot here. Guaranteed <laughs> philosophy here. Is it a necessary? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say no, because I do think you can have war crimes that occur in the absence of desensitization. Okay. I could imagine that happening. Yeah. Okay. But is it a very common... What would be an example? Where someone commits a very kind of personal war crime against someone who they specifically, like, hate. Like, okay. That doesn't seem like desensitization to me. Now, we might call it something else. But I think the kinds, of, well, the kinds of war crimes that I'm particularly interested in, so these tend to be sort of large-scale institutionalised war crimes. Um, so in that case, desensitization is certainly part of that picture. Mm. I said, yeah, I think it's certainly not sufficient because I yeah. said, you know. Yeah, I agree. Nurse- Otherwise, we'd all be doing it, right? I mean, it's, right. A, it's, yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, the point that the anecdote that you gave is interesting because I think it also points to that if we're thinking about prevention, which is also getting ahead of the thing, I would just teach people to be more empathetic. It's like, eh, <laughs> well, maybe, but empathy is such a limited resource for human beings. Mm, yeah, right? and it's dangerous, yeah. Very limited resource, which is depleted by all kinds of things that are not necessarily morally problematic. Hmm. Imaginably, we can't feel empathy for, you know, a hundred people. Yes. Like, and so I think, well, empathy is not a magic bullet that's going to suddenly make war crimes disappear. Yeah. Because you're talking about large-scale killing, particularly these kind of institutionalized cases. Hmm. So that, in the sense, I think it illustrates that there's like a limit to, and some yeah. of it comes about through just overexposure. And some of it, I think, is just we have our emotions are very fragile in that sense. Yeah. And and this is why Kant, for example, always thought that, you know, acting out of emotion, you didn't get moral credit for that, even if what you did was conforming with what duty required. Mm. Why? Because emotions are unreliable. You know, one day I feel all soft and fuzzy and give lots of money to the homeless. Another day I might just be exhausted and tired and, you know, just don't feel like it. So it can't be the case that, like doing the right thing is just contingent on whether I feel all soft and fuzzy. That's wonderful because we, we will come back to that because we know also to research yeah. that we can prime that, right? we can prime behaviour. Right. Uh, but just before we get I do have to ask one question to reset us, I guess, because this is just fascinating. Uh, so, you know, what is the main thesis of your book? Okay. So that we know what we're talking about quite clearly uh, because I'm sure by now some of our listeners have gone, what? where are they going? <laughs> so what is, the, what is the thesis of war crimes, causes, excuses and blame? It's funny, I had to come up with like a, well, Matt and I had to come up with like a 50-word summary, which I've now, of course, completely forgotten. But the basic, <laughs> I mean, we're basically interested in two questions. So one is about how is it that war crimes, again, our focus or interest is more on institutionalised war crimes. Why do they occur? Why do people commit war crimes believing that what they're doing is the right thing? So those are the kind of cases we're particularly interested in. So while we do discuss some cases of what we call sort of heat of battle crimes, in those cases, typically the perpetrators don't believe that they're acting in accordance with duty. Mm. Right? They don't typically claim to justify their behaviour by reference to military virtues or honour or something like that. 
So how do you get this case where people who view themselves as good people can come to believe that something like torture or, you know, widespread genocidal killing of, mm. of civilians or institutionalised rape as, as something that's permissible or even morally good? How does that process occur? So that's one part of the question. Mm. And the other part of the question we're interested in, well, what does this tell us about the moral responsibility of perpetrators? Right. So, so the two parts of the book sort of intersect in that how we explain war crimes is going to have implications for how blameworthy we think perpetrators are. Mm. So some explanations for war crimes, such as the ones that we criticise, what we call the situationist accounts, if those are correct, it actually does tend to lead to the view that war crimes perpetrators are not more responsible. So there's a, a strong kind of connection between your account of war crimes and your response, your views about responsibility for war crimes perpetrators. Mm. So ultimately, our thesis is that you know we see war crimes as being an intersection or interaction between what we might think you know situational factors interacting in a back and forth way, right? Not in a straightforward way, but rather an interaction between a, an individual person's own values, their self-conception, how they see themselves, how they think of themselves, what matters to them, how they construe the situation they're in, you know, as well as the situation that they're actually placed in. The interaction between those things we think plays an important role in understanding why an individual person commits war crimes. Mm. And then at a broader level, the kinds of ways in which they make sense of their actions in a context are shaped very much by sort of social, institutional, political narratives that provide meaning, a, a sort of mm. framework of meaning over a particular conflict, say. Mm. And, you know, our view about responsibility, which I can go into in more detail. You do have a question about that, I saw. Yeah, I do. So maybe if we go into that, maybe yeah. we can just uh, just explore a little bit more what we mean firstly by the situationist perspective and the case studies that you use, and, and then, of course, discuss some of the criticism of it. Yeah. So situationism, I mean, it's a, it's a term which it can describe a range of different views. So the views that we are describing by that term come from sort of philosophical discussion of a set of experiments in social psychology that were conducted, you know, from the 1960s, actually even a bit earlier, from the 1920s, and then all the way through to the 1980s. And the most famous of which would be, you know, Stanley Milgram's experiments on obedience to authority. Uh, so he has your Milgram experiments, for those of you who don't know about it, involves people being required to give what they believe to be increasing levels of electric shocks to someone else um, who was described as the learner. Mm. So the idea was that if the learner gave a wrong answer, the person had to give them an electric shock and would go up each time. And there were many different variations. So, so in some, the learner, the person receiving the electric shocks was visible but not audible to the subject of the experiment, the person giving the shocks. In others, the, the learner was only audible. In one case, the learner was right next to the person giving them the shock. Mm. So they actually had to physically put the person's hand on the plate to give them a shock. And the background is that Milgram was really interested in the question, why was it that so many ordinary Germans seemed to participate and facilitate the genocidal program of the Nazis, right? Uh, so it's like, how could all these ordinary people do this? Mm. Just to jump in there with, a, with an interesting piece of that one was that I think he asked his peers, other psychologists, to guess what percentage, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the collective brain trust thought that only 1% of the participants, you know, would go to the uh, thing lethal, lethal high and yeah. High, yeah, which, yeah, which of course is, uh, as I'm sure you'll let us know, wasn't the case. That's right. So yeah, he, I think he asked psychology students and his peers to say, well, how many people will continue giving shocks to this person up to the highest level on the board? And they're like, oh, you know, maybe one, two percent. Mm -hmm. So in, in the version of the experiment in which the learner, so the person receiving the shocks was 
audible, right, mm-hmm. 60% continue to giving shocks yeah. until the very end of the ward. So at, at various points, the learner, who, again, the learner is a confederate of the experimenter, so they're in on the on the fix. And the learner would give kind of, you know, various things like, stop, I've got a heart, you know, I've got a heart condition, let me out. Mm. And so there were points along, I guess, the, the steps of electricity. Mm. As it got higher and higher at certain points, the, the learner would say, hey, stop. And, and so the idea was, well, how many people keep going after the learner has actually said, mm. I want to get out of here, stop, I've got a heart condition. And then eventually falls silent. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and again, yeah. people just kept giving shots. There are videos of this for anyone interested. I mean, it's just amazing to see oh, the, yeah, the, the human psyche of it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting too is that people weren't just like blithely going ahead giving shocks. You see them they're very distressed, they're disturbed. Some people stop and ask for reassurance. There's lots of different kinds of dynamics going on. And interestingly, the, in the version of the experiment, when the, the learner is actually sitting next to the subject, and so the subject has to physically put the learner's hand on a metal plate with the shocks, the rate of obedience was still about 30%. Oh wow! So this I is when the person wow. like sitting next yeah. to them, going, "Hey, I don't want to be here. Stop it!" Oof, um, wow. So it's right. So it was really, really shocking, and, mm. and it raised a whole lot of questions then about you know how how do we account for this? So people have all kinds of different theories. So you know, there's another couple of experiments that are also commonly talked about. So I'll come back to Milgram in a moment, mm-hmm. but I just mentioned another one which is often talked about, which is Darley and Batson's Good Samaritan experiment. Mm-hmm. And this is one where the subjects were all students at a theological yeah. seminary. The irony is just, uh, just that's right, that's beautiful. Right. Yeah. Some of them were told they had to give a talk about the Good Samaritan parable. Some of them were told they had to give a talk about, I think it was occupations or something for clergy. Regardless, then, you know, some of them were told they had to leave the room right now. They were going to be late if they wanted to give a talk. Some were told that they, they left now, they'll be right on time. And some said, oh, you've got plenty of time. And as they walk from the room where they're interviewed to the place they're supposed to give the talk, they pass this person that supposedly is in distress, right? And that person obviously is in on the experiment. It's an actor. Mm. And the question was, well, who's going to stop and help this person in distress, right? And what the experiment has found is that the only thing that made a difference as to who stopped and helped, so it wasn't whether they were giving a talk on the Good Samaritan, <laughs> it was just whether or not they thought they were in a hurry. So the students who were in a hurry, like I think 10% maybe stopped and helped the person. And then I can't remember the exact rates, but it goes up. Like the, if the person thought they the time, they would stop and help. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other experiments, which I, I won't go into now, but mm. the, the upshot is, and the way these have been interpreted by some philosophers is that, look, we generally think that people's behaviour is explainable by reference to their character, Mm. right? So that, you know, a compassionate person, if they see someone who's in distress in the street, will stop and help them. Why did they do that? Because they're a compassionate person. Mm. So we refer to character traits like that to explain and predict people's behaviour. But it turns out, according to this particular theory, that actually human behaviour seems to be influenced disproportionately by situational factors that we think shouldn't have such a big influence. Mm. But whether, I, whether or not I stop and help someone in distress, surely that shouldn't be influenced by whether or not I just happen to be if in you're a hurry. hurry. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a significant enough situational factor to explain, yeah. to, to make all the difference that it does. So that's the issue. Because we all accept that, of course, you know, extreme situational factors will make a big difference in someone's behaviour. But these experiments seem to show that, you know, even very minor situational things. So is one's involved mm. in scent, like if you walk past a bakery with it's more likely to help someone who drops their papers in the street, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and I mean, this is a bit, these are important findings, I think, in the sense that it, in a way, removes the, 
the idea that we're independent, autonomous, rational creatures, we had the same kind of uh, in economic terms. You know, we had a rational economic theory thinking that, you know, uh, a trickle-down effect, all boats rise equally, et cetera. That's been disproven. And I think, uh, you know, we're now potentially realizing that, you know, similar applies to our, you know, rational actor thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was experiments on, you know, if you're holding a, a warm drink, that will impact how, you know, warm you are perceived, or in other words, how yeah. how warmly you're acting. And I mean, there are stacks of these types of experiments, even one which I found fascinating on, one recalled the exact details of it, but it was the, the, the kind of honesty box in a, in a cafeteria where, you, you know, you get a drink and you put your, you know, your dollar in. Right, right. It has stuck just a pair of eyes on, right. above and the box, people, just a yeah. you know, printed pair of eyes, yeah. not a person in any way, just a pair of eyes. Uh, and I think the the amount of money in the box went up by something like 60%. Again, you know, I'll need to, you know, double check, but it was, it was something very, very significant. And this is this idea of being observed, how differently we act. And most of us wouldn't think that. No, we would like to think that whether or not I'm generous shouldn't be dependent on whether there's a, you know, googly eye stuck to a box. We'd like to think it's because I'm a generous person. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does seem to, you know, really challenge both sort of common conceptions of the relationship between character and behaviour and also individual conceptions of sort of cast out on my certainty that I would behave in the compassionate way. I mean, I I would hope I would say no to the experimenter in Wilgham's experiment. I really hope. But I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. I'm- Statistically speaking, let, let's assume for a moment, yeah, that the experiment is accurate. That's right. Yeah. And his one has been replicated, I think, a number of times with similar mm. results, like mm. in different countries. So it doesn't seem to be because some people think, well, maybe it's just like America. So maybe yeah. it's just America. Yeah. I read one on nurses as well. I'm not sure if you're if if this is in your book or, or uh, where a doctor who is not a resident doctor at that particular hospital called and told the nurses to administer the, the nurse, whichever nurse would pick up. Uh, and of course, that was staged, but it was it was real. It was in in an actual right, hospital right. under uncontrolled settings. It wasn't an experiment setting. It was an actual hospital. Yeah. But the doctor they had never spoken to, never heard of. The, the doctor was an actor. Mm-hmm. Asked the nurse to administer a drug that they know would be problematic or beyond the recommended dosage to a particular patient. And I think something like nine out of 10 did so, uh, which again is a huge indicator of this idea of, well, this is a person in authority, uh, somebody who I should obey, you know, by my training, by my, you know, by the role that I'm playing, that I'm assuming of the role of a nurse, there's an inculcated hierarchy that exists within this, you know, role, role play that we're doing. And when I say role play, this, this kind of, you know, subcultural behaviors that we have, uh, you know, that allow us to actually negotiate, you know, who's who in this particular zoo. So some people think that the way to think about the Milgram experiments is not so much that the subjects were all terrible people, but rather that maybe they shared a kind of disposition towards obedience because this is a, a, a trait that is trained, you know, inculcated in our society, uh, you know, assumption of authority and certain kinds of, you know, role figures like, you know, like doctors in particular. Mm. And uh, so some people theorise that it doesn't disprove character so much as show that like dispositions like disobedience might be kind of stronger than we would want them to be in context mm. like that. Yeah, it takes a lot to step outside of the norm, right? Yeah. There's yeah. also other factors, I mean, in that experiment, I think are interesting, like, and Malcolm himself didn't view his results as being evidence that there's no such thing as character because he thought there were a lot of different factors that explained or were part of the picture of explaining why some people would continue. And one of it was the kind of the, the gradual nature of the process. So you start off giving a full shock and then it's very incremental each time you go up one level. And so at what point do you say no? You know, I've gone this far. I didn't say no then. So how do I say no now? 
Another part of it which was fascinating and actually something which I saw when I looked at research on training of torturers is this sort of focus on the kind of logistics of the task required. Mm. So this sort mm-hmm. of focus on depressing the levers really carefully, you know, so doing the kind of technical aspects carefully as in like that's my responsibility is doing this technology, yeah. you know, whether or not it's justified is someone else's responsibility. So that was something yeah. for and then uh, you see oh, yeah. this yeah. torturers too. Torturers often will talk about the torturers I researched in my book would often talk about the kind of. So just to again clarify, because I mean, it's oh, I love how yes. easily that just rolls off the tongue. You know, <laughs> just these torturers that I interviewed. Yeah, yeah. I didn't interview them. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, research. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just give us um, context yeah. who these people are. I mean, these you know, oh, okay. uh, uh, <laughs> what, what kind of torture are we talking yeah. about? <laughs> I looked at research on torturers from Greece, mm-hmm. from a number of countries in Latin America, including Brazil and Uruguay. And the research on the Greek torturers, the woman who did that research actually interviewed a lot of them who were in prison at the time. And and what, again, you see this this sort of reference across these different contexts, the different countries, Mm. uh, but you see some similarities among how torturers, I describe how they were trained, but also how they talk about themselves. And you see this sort of emphasis on professionalisation. And this this professionalisation is construed as being my role is to carry out this particular kind of skill to the best of my ability, and that's divorced in my, my mindset from larger questions of morality or legality, right? Mm. I'm a torturer. I'm a little bit like the person in Milgram Experiments who just says, well, my job is to just press the levers very carefully. I'm going to do it correctly. It's the experimenter who's responsible for whether it's moral or not. And so there was one torturer that was discussed. There was another book by an author called John Conroy, um, which I, recounts a, a torture victim actually saying that one time. And this victim, I think, was maybe in Brazil, but he recounted later that he'd been released that the, his torture had said to him that when the revolution comes, he, the torturer, would be available to torture whoever they wanted, you know, because he was professional. So like, like the professional executioner, right, who, you know, works for whoever is in charge and, I have this skill set and it's, and this is my, you know, I'm proud. This of, is my this CV. Point. Yeah. 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 I'm proud of my professional achievements. Yeah. And another torturer talked about, you know, again, with a kind of sense of pride that all his tortures and his murders only took place in the name of duty. Mm. So he never killed anyone off duty. Mm. And so that was a really important distinction for him. That was very important to his self-conception as a professional. So that's a slight sidebar, but it does just to circle back to situationism. Mm-hmm. The straight up simplistic situationist account of war crimes will say something like either war crimes occur because of battlefield situational forces, mm-hmm. right? And we don't really, we kind of agree with that. Sure, why not? I mean, extreme stress, fear, tiredness, exhaustion undermine someone's ability to regulate their actions or to know right from wrong. What situationists also sometimes say, so John Doris is the person we talk about most who has this view, is that, well, it's not just battlefield forces, right? It's also things like military training, group bonding, ideologies, dehumanisation. All of these things are also external situational forces and they shape the soldier's mindset such that the soldier will end up believing that certain things are okay when they're not. Right. So the mm-hmm. situationist explanation of something like institutionalized torture would say something like, well, it's these people come to believe that torture is okay. Why did they come to believe that? Because they've been exposed to these situational pressures. These are long-term sort of mm. institutional situational pressures that have 
in a sense, corrupted, undermined their ability to know right from wrong. So they come to have this belief that torture is okay, but in a sense that belief is sort of put in them from outside by virtue of these mm. operational forces, and that leads them to they're, they're not really able to then make the right kind of moral judgment. So that's a kind of simplistic situation as account of war crimes. You draw some criticisms of this particular point. Uh, what, what is some of that criticism? I think there are two main criticisms. One is that, okay, and again, I'm going to leave aside sort of heat of battle cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, take the institutionalised torture case or genocidal case as well. The problem with these accounts is that, well, first of all, it doesn't really explain the differences that you see in perpetrators. So perpetrators of war crimes who have been exposed to you know, pretty much the same training, ideologies, actually behave differently. Some people engage in war crimes almost enthusiastically. Mm. Others are extremely reluctant to participate. Even if they do think that what they're doing is the right thing, they might still feel reluctant. And some people refuse. So even in cases such as the Nazi genocide, there were some soldiers who refused to participate in, say, mass shootings of Jewish Indians. Mm. So you have these differences, but how do you account for those differences if you're a situationist? Mm. Because they're all exposed to the same on the ground factors. They're all in the same unit, for example. They all went through the same training. So it starts to get a little bit implausible to think that, well, there's got to be some kind of Mm. situational factor that we're missing that explains why, you know, this person refused and this person, Mm -hmm. you know, went ahead enthusiastically and this person only killed reluctantly. And so it doesn't seem to give an account for these differences that we actually see. And some people call that the smile problem, right? You have the smiling, Mm. enthusiastic perpetrator and you have the reluctant perpetrator. I also think it just doesn't do justice to the reality of the ways in which soldiers or indeed any kind of perpetrator of violence actually does engage with and think and make sense of their own actions. Mm. We just don't think it's a very plausible account, both in terms of actually describing differences that we see and as a, as a kind of thesis of human behaviour, we don't think it's very plausible either. Yeah. And it also tends to assume that we can give an objective account of what the situation is, that there's a situation that has these features and that's an objective fact and then people are placed into this situation and they're all pushed around by these features in different ways and they all are behaving this way. It's like... Mm. Well, what a situation is, right, is also something which is shaped by the individual person's own interpretation of what their situation mm. they're in. Or their- and their personal histories that are, that are interacting yeah, with that. Right, that's yeah, that's right. So and it's really hard for a kind of simplistic situationist view to make sense of that. Yeah, and I guess that is the strongest argument against this kind of hard situationism that, you know, yeah. that nature will override whatever nurture uh, in the given point, which I guess is that then, the dispositional account that then takes a a slightly different view. It still, I think, relies on, you know, we can't deny, and just by the experiments we discussed, we can't deny that the situation has an impact. And statistically speaking, there will be, you know, X percentage of people who will either do the good or do the bad. Uh, And I guess in, in a military context, the way I see the role of the military ethics training piece is that, you know, it's very hard to even say that, you know, there hasn't been a war that hasn't had some form of war crime. Right. Uh, you know, it's very hard to admit that. Uh, it's also very hard to admit that, you know, chances are, st- statistically speaking, just by what we discussed, you know, that at some point, some of our soldiers will cross the line of what we consider moral and ethical. Yeah. But I guess the sooner we embrace that reality, the sooner we can realise that it's about reducing the likelihood of these things occurring. Right. It's also about understanding. I mean, I think one of the problems I have often with military ethics training 
is that it touches on one very small part of the way of thinking about war crimes. So again, military ethics training often thinks of war crimes as a bad apples thing, as a failure of virtue. Mm. But that, what that misses is that if you look at, again, the institutionalised war crimes, I mean, what constitutes a military virtue is not some objective known fact, right, but it's shaped by social, political and local narratives. So think about, like, the virtue of honour. What does honour mm. require? And in some cultures, in some contexts, in some wars, Honour has been viewed as consistent with killing civilians. It sounds astonishing. Yeah. In the case studies we discussed in the book, the two German soldiers, Karl Kretschmer and Felix Landau, what's fascinating about those two cases is that it's rare that you get, I guess, written reflective accounts of someone's thought process from the time in which they're involved in war crimes. Mm. Because there's plenty mm. of cases. Someone, obviously, who's in prison might give a very different account. But Cal Kretschmer wrote letters to his family. Felix Landau kept a diary. At the time, they were involved in the Einsatzgruppen. So they were involved in these groups that were shooting mm. uh, civilians. So on the one hand, you have Cal Kretschmer who agonises over the fact that he finds it really disturbing and distressing to shoot unarmed people. But he firmly believes that they're in an existential war against the Jews. Mm. So he's totally bought into that particular narrative, that the Jews represent an existential threat to German people. And so he sees being a good soldier, being a virtuous soldier as overcoming his distress. How is he going to do that? And he actually writes this to his his daughter. The way to do it is to do it more often. That's how you overcome it. But he does reassure his daughter that he's not shooting immoderately. But is he wrong? And as in, it sounds absurd, but he's not wrong. I'm just thinking back to some of my own fears in military training of abseiling. You know, I'm not a great fan of heights of abseiling. You know, it took three, four, five times for me to do it, to go, okay, now I'm not as uncomfortable with this. Or skydiving. Uh, it took, you know, 19 jumps for me to, to feel comfortable with, you know, skydiving. Yeah. So these kinds of things are, he's not wrong, as absurd and insane right. as it sounds. Yeah. So he's actually saying, I need to get mm. more desensitized to this. Why do I need yeah. to get more desensitized? Because it's my duty, because I need to serve this greater moral purpose of protecting the Germans from this existential threat. So on the other hand, like Felix Landau is like, well, he's not morally particularly troubled by this, but <laughs> yeah. he he doesn't like killing civilians, but he doesn't like it because he, he views it as being not very warlike. It's not what he thought he was mm. getting into signed up. He thought he would be on a battlefield shooting at soldiers. Here he is rounding up and shooting civilians. Not mm. what he thought war should be. But look, it's really important to be a good soldier. And for him, that means you're obedient, you do what you're asked to do, and you do it well. So he's kind of proud about how well he's doing his job, which it happens to be killing civilians. Um, so he doesn't have that emotional distress. But again, you see this appeal to what we might think of in other contexts, morally commendable traits, you know, until we really get to grips with the fact that people who think they are good, people who can appeal to moral values and virtues and what these virtues and values mean to them is going to be shaped, not determined, but shaped by mm-hmm. available moral frameworks which give meaning to a conflict uh, in ways that can make it the case that something as abhorrent as killing civilians can come to be viewed as what is required as being a good soldier. Mm. And in, in the torture context, you often see torturers praise themselves for showing restraint and self-control, and which is ironic because sometimes self-control is positive as something that we need to train soldiers in to prevent war crimes. Mm. But again, like these other traits I've mentioned, self-control itself is not 
morally good, right? It's morally neutral. And so in a context where torture is being framed as a necessary evil, for example, like it was during the Bush administration, the US torture program, Mm -hmm. torture framed as a necessary evil, then self-control becomes a virtue in that context and something that's necessary for good soldiers or good interrogators to have to do their job properly. So I, I think the kind of focus on, well, if we only just get soldiers to be more, you know, insert virtue X, we'll solve the problem, neglects how the very concept of these virtues is shaped through these different kinds of social political frameworks. Mm. And so I think as long as we continue to think of war crimes as being failures of virtue, as failures to live up to the sort of military values, we're missing how, in fact, you know, these contexts can occur when these are viewed as being consistent with military values. Yeah. And that's confronting because it means we have to say, hey, we've done this and we have to be kind of honest about how that came about. And, you know, when we talk about like the US torture program, pretty much everyone starts talking about, it ends the conversation with Abu Ghraib. Mm. But of course that misses the whole institutional structure of that program. So I think there has to be kind of real reckoning with like, yeah, we did this. And one of the ways we did it was by accepting this framework, which portrayed it as a way as something that was good and necessary required for national security. And so without challenging those narratives, I don't think you're going to get very far. I love that. I love that because I think that speaks so much to to my own views and understanding of how we discuss this topic. And right. and part of the, the aim of this podcast and why I discuss these topics is to reconcile the fact that we are all capable of this. Statistically, right. we are all capable. Right. It doesn't say we're going to do it, but statistically speaking, you know, we are all capable of quote unquote evil. I hope you have found the first part of this discussion insightful. Part two will be out on the 8th of September, where Jessica explains an alternate model to understanding war crimes, and most importantly, what we can do to reduce the likelihood of them occurring. Until then, thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.